0: It's great so we don't have to wake up with shoulder pain. On top of that, it's been really fun for me to see him have so much success because it's been selling like crazy. Anyways, if you're a side sleeper, I highly recommend going to pillowcube.com and getting one
1: for yourself. They say, here's the big giant problem I'm trying to solve. Here's why we're the right people to solve it. Here's why we're solving it in a fresh and compelling way. And here's what the world's going to look like if I am successful. That's exactly how people should pitch their speaking business. It's funny. I mean, most people (laughs) say like, like you say, well, what do you speak about? They say, well, I speak about cybersecurity. So they're, they're sharing their topic, but they're not actually taking people on, they're not telling the story back to our little thing. The first thing an entrepreneur would do is tell the problem. So someone who speaks on cybersecurity should say, I help organizations that are struggling.
0: So you've got a pretty exciting background. A venture capitalist, you know, built five tech companies, sold for combined value, two hundred million keynote speeches all over the world, New York Times bestselling author. One that we don't get on the show as much is is top-notch jazz guitarist. Can you
1: tell us about that to begin with? (laughs) Sure. Well, so I'm from Detroit, Michigan. I was born in the city of Detroit, and I grew up playing guitar. I actually put myself through college playing music. I used to sneak into jazz clubs in inner city Detroit when I was a teenager. I don't like a 50-50 ratio. Sometimes they'd let me sit in. The other times I'd get like tossed out in the alley. But I actually just love playing jazz. I've been playing now for over 40 years, and it's just a real passion of mine. And I still play at a professional level, I, the best way to sound good is to hire musicians that are better than you. So that, that works very well for me. But I love the art form. It's, it's, it's dangerous. It's improvisational. It's fresh. It's always different. So I'm a big fan. And I still, actually really affected my, my business outcomes a lot, learning the principles of jazz. What's an example of that? Well, one of the things that happens in jazz is this, it's the this spontaneous art form. Only 1% of the notes are on the written page and the rest you really literally make up as you go. So a lot of it is about not only just performing well, but being a good supporting cast member, being a good listener. But the thing I think is most interesting that, that people don't understand is you look at a jazz musician, they they seem like super creative. Truth is that it's the cultural framework of a jazz combo that encourages responsible risk-taking. So in other words, if I'm playing a jazz gig and, and I I play real safe, no one's going to hire me back and I get kind of laughed off of the, of the stage. On the other hand, if I play a terrible note, I play a total clunker, I just play it twice more and call it art. Everything's good. But, you know, kidding aside, it's basically, you know, there's this real collaborative, supportive dynamic where you're encouraging each other to take risks and you realize you're going to, the confidence doesn't come from from playing things perfectly. It comes from knowing you're going to screw something up and really getting getting good at course correcting. And so it's just a really cool principle playing jazz that applies directly to building companies and the business world in general, certainly to innovation. Yeah. Did you get a chance
0: to see the new Pixar movie, Soul?
1: I did. I loved it. I love the music, of course, but I loved his whole his whole principle behind it. And it's a, it's a wonderful story of those who haven't seen it, but it really kind of you get a little peek behind the, behind the scenes of, of we jazz folk.
0: <laughs> That's great. Well, I really want to talk about the new book, but, but maybe to begin with, can you tell us about these five tech businesses you built and then, and then the venture capital?
1: Sure. Well, the first company that I started, I, I was 20 years old. I had no idea what the hell I was doing. I would never taken a business class. But i was a bit of a tech nerd and as mentioned a real jazz guy and so i saw the opportunity to start this little company and i just said i'm just going to figure it out it was literally the same principles of jazz except playing instead of playing notes i was just playing with with technology yeah, I started this company when I was in college. I didn't know what I was doing. I made a ton of mistakes by the way, but we ended up getting some traction and I sold it before I graduated. And then I got I got I got kind of the bug, you know, and and again when I play jazz it's this creative process and I, I was able to port that same principle to to building and growing tech companies. So fast forward over 30 plus years, you know, I've done that multiple times. The largest company that I built, which is probably the most notable, was a company I started in 1999 called EPrize we designed, built, and ran digital promotions for large brand advertisers. Kind of like half ad agency and half software company. And at the time, everyone was really focused on on internet advertising, but digital promotions was dormant. I mean, there was really very little activity in promotions. So I thought, instead of following the herd and being like the 643rd internet advertising company, could I be the first digital promotion company? And it, that that strategy worked. It was counterintuitive. It was sort of uh, oppositional, if you will. But we grew to to ultimately have clients of seventy four of the top one hundred brands, about five hundred team members, offices throughout the U.S. and, and London. Uh, before I sold the company in twenty twelve.
0: Yeah, I'm interested in your opinion. It seems like so often as business owners or or you know somebody's a corporate innovator trying to start a new division. There's such a temptation to try to be better than our competition. And yet, if you look historically, it seems like. There's, there's often more money in being different than the competition than better. Do you have
1: any thoughts about that? You know, that is such a profoundly great point. I couldn't agree more. You know, instead of trying to blend in and and, and get lost in the herd like we do in nature, uh, really, it's so much better to look for ways that you can be the opposite. It's funny. A lot of my work over the last 30 years, I've tried to develop really practical tools to help people use the principles of innovation in everyday situations. And one of my favorite is called the judo flip. So a judo flip is basically, let's say you're facing a problem or trying to seize an opportunity. Maybe it's a new business innovation. You sort of make a list. All right, what does everybody else do? What's the prevailing wisdom? What's the conventional approach? What have I done before? And then write, draw, draw a line down the page and on the other side of each entry, just ask yourself, what's the polar opposite? What would it look like if I judo flipped it? So again, for me, instead of following the herd and being lost in the shuffle with, with internet advertising, the judo flip was to pursue digital promotions. But that oppositional nature has unlocked innovations, big and small, for, for decades. And it's a very simple, powerful uh, pneumatic that people can use.
0: You know, so congratulations on the new book coming out. I know you've got to... Uh... <laughs> other New York Times bestselling
1: books. Can you give people a little bit of the premise of Big Little Breakthroughs? Sure, so the title is Big Little Breakthroughs, How Small Everyday Innovations Drive Oversized Results. And simply put, it's it's a work that helps everyday people become everyday innovators. I think about the face of innovation and we think of you know Elon Musk or Mark Zuckerberg, but I think about you and me and, and, and everyday people using the principles of, of creativity and, and inventive thinking to do really cool stuff that doesn't have to change the world. This is sort of like innovation for the rest of us. So I'm really excited about it, man. I, I have to say, I put over a thousand hours of research and interviews with billionaires and CEOs and celebrity entrepreneurs down to individual folks that are just normal people doing innovative stuff. And in the book, uh, it, it shares new research in the field of innovation. It sort of demystifies it. It debunks a lot of myths. And then it gets into these eight core mindsets, the eight core obsessions of everyday innovators. So I tried to make the book really fun and upbeat. It's like kind of cool storytelling. It's not the obvious stuff. I don't talk about Netflix or Apple. As innovative as they may be, these are these are surprising, fresh stories. And But then really, I, with a real focus on being practical. You know, what can readers do to take these nuggets and put them into action? Not just learn cool stories, but actually form, form real real approaches and, and change the way that they, they interact and the way that they grow and the way they lead.
0: You know, you brought up the judo flip and, and- Thank you for sending me advanced copy. I've really been enjoying it. I'm a, I'm definitely a book nerd. So, and and I think this was the judo flip. Is the does the Saint Regis Hotel fit into the judo flip category? Is that with those? Is that a match there, or is that a different principle?
1: That that might be a slightly different principle, but I'm glad you brought it up. I mean, so so just my whole my whole thing is, you know, most of us think about creativity in terms of brainstorming. And brainstorming is just a completely, wildly out-of-date technique. It started in 1958, and, you know, a lot's changed since 1958. And if you want to yield mediocre ideas, brainstorming is great. But if you really want to push the boundaries, I felt like we needed a new toolkit. So over the last 20 years, I've developed a whole toolkit of, of a bunch of fresh, different techniques. And, and one of them, you bring up the story about the St. Regis Hotel. So here's what happened. St. Regis Hotel, Washington, D.C., they were looking for new ways to, to, to serve customers and win business in a competitive field. And so they're, they're looking around the hotel, looking for an opportunity, and it kind of led them to the empty closet. So every hotel operator around the world has that same empty closet in every single hotel room. But they started looking at it and saying, "Huh, maybe there's something more here. Maybe we could do something that's different. You know, maybe we could we could there's an un, undeveloped asset." So what they did is is as follows: they teamed up with the with, with Neiman Marcus, luxury retailer, and they sort of activated this closet to be a a retail space. So here's how it works: be, before you arrive at the hotel. You're sent a survey. It asks about your size and your fashion preferences. And and then when you walk in, you open up the closet and it's not empty. It's filled with hand selected goods just for you. And so you try them on in the privacy of your room. If you like it, walk off with it. It's just auto built to your hotel invoice. So here's what they did all in one little idea. They they activated a dead space. They created competitive differentiation. They created a new revenue stream. They did it with no capital since Neiman Marcus footed the bill. And and they really, again, stood out from, from the competitive set. And so so th- this technique I often think about as as more borrowing. So you're sort of thinking about where, where else in the world, what else is happening? So you might say, okay, e-commerce is happening. People kind of like that. Could I borrow that concept and put it in a hotel room? And so borrowing is a really powerful technique when you're struggling with either an opportunity or a challenge, you just say that question, where else? Where else in the world is something similar happening? Where else is someone solving a problem that's tough? And is there a nugget that I could grab onto and borrow and bring back to my situation to really move the needle and be different? Good example is, let's say you're a tax attorney and, and you're really busy during tax season, instead of only studying other tax attorneys, you might say, huh, how do cruise ships load and unload passengers during peak periods? And and you might find a little nugget that again, you could borrow from one part of life and apply to a different part.
0: Well, I think it's such an interesting story. It makes me think, I can't remember who the guy is, but the first first French guy to write down the word entrepreneur, you know, back in 1797 or whatever it was. Right. And it was like, it was meant to describe these people who could take a resource of a lower value and make it a higher value. And and it just makes me think like, you know, I've got, I've got friends that own chains of hotels. Right. And they have all walked past those empty closets million, like collectively their staff hundreds and hundreds of thousands of times. Right. And, and it's almost like a, a blindness. And yet that like that opportunity has been sitting there for how many luxury hotels. And, and yet There's obviously something happens to like, look at the same old hotel room with a new set of eyes or something, isn't it?
1: Yeah, that's exactly right. And and that's really what I encourage people to do. Like think about in your own life or business, you know, what are the empty closets that you're facing? And you know, we all know the term deja vu, where you're seeing something and you think you've seen it before. Well, Adam Grant, one of my friends, a wonderful author, talks about vu deja, which is the opposite, which is sort of seeing something that you see all the time, but in a fresh way. And, and looking at that closet, they ordinarily just walk right past. Like, you're right. We all see it a billion times a day. But they said, wait a minute. Well, let's pause a minute. Is there something that's, that's hidden here that we could exploit? And, and that's exactly right. That's one uh, powerful way to unlock value.
0: Yeah. You know, another story that I was really interested to see in, in the book, can you tell the StockX story? I mean, and it sounds like you know you know him personally.
1: Yeah. So as mentioned, I'm from Detroit, proud, proud Detroiter. And uh, I started a, a venture fund in 2010 called Detroit Venture Partners. And our, our vision there was, you know, maybe we'd make some money, but more importantly, maybe we could make a difference. And, and so we decided to use tech investing as a platform for social change and urban revitalization. Uh, The idea was to back passionate tech entrepreneurs in downtown Detroit. To do you know, amazing things. So, anyway, people are like, this is crazy. Are you stupid? Like, go to Boston, go to New York, go to Silicon Valley. So, we're like, okay, let's just do it anyway. <laughs> so, we took the risk and, and took a non traditional approach and started backing tech entrepreneurs in Detroit. So, at one point, a young uh, gentleman named Greg Schwartz came knocking and he had an idea. And I honestly, I thought the idea wasn't great. Like, but I, he was great. He was really compelling, not in a larger than life manner, but just in an open minded and humble and sincere and whip smart kind of way. and and he was benevolent and caring, just a gem of a person. So I said, hey man, I I like you a ton. I don't love your idea. Would you be open-minded? Could we work on this together? So over the next month or so, we we tweaked and pivoted his idea a bit, and it ultimately uh, became a company called UpTo, which was trying to reimagine the calendar. It was sort of like a social platform for the future. If you think about Facebook as the past and Twitter is the present, this is uh, orienting around what are you up to? What are you about to do next? We thought it was a cool idea. Greg was an awesome guy. And frankly, it got off to a bit of a fizzle. We funded the company and often is the case, the original vision didn't pan out the way we would hoped. And we, were, we, we kept funding it. We loved him, but it wasn't just kind of clicking. But at one point, one of my partners, a guy named uh, Dan Gilbert, who uh, is famous for owning the Cleveland Cavaliers, and he's also the, uh, the chairman of Rocket Mortgage, came to Greg with a little beginning of an idea for a stock market for tennis shoes, basically. I guess one of his sons was really into the, the upscale tennis shoe uh, trading market. So Greg actually pivoted up to this, this company that we backed that really didn't work out the way he'd hoped, into this little idea called StockX. And and they had tons of obstacles. The idea was basically a, a trading platform for uh, things it's like the stock market of things. And they started with collectible tennis shoes. They did everything un, untraditionally, non-traditionally. They, they took possession of each item and, and authenticated it before shipping it out. So the shipping costs in both ways. And Greg just got started. Like he got after it. He didn't have everything perfect. He didn't have a, a bulletproof plan. He didn't have permission. He didn't have a directive, but he, he, he in earnest went after it realizing that he would have to course correct and pivot along the way. And that's exactly what they do. They grew this company and continue to to, to execute brilliantly with speed and and precision and and creativity. Today, the company is valued at nearly $3 billion. It's Detroit's first unicorn, I'm proud to say. To also be clear, I take take no responsibility whatsoever in it. It's Greg and team (laughs) has has done everything. But it is cool to see a a person in a non-traditional geography applying the principles of everyday innovation to the point where he was able to really make history and create something of extraordinary value. You
0: know, it it is such an interesting story, StockX. You know, the podcast I literally just got off is Mike Steve. He started Artsy and, you know, they're taking like, you know, million dollar artworks and and very closed world of high-end art and have put price tags on it and, you know, make it available across the world. And, you know, just like StockX sells Kaws, K-A-W-S, that guy. And it's interesting, you know, sneakerheads, like it's a cool kids club. You know what I mean? Like people who have spent $2,000 on a pair of sneakers, like it's, it's a little bit of a cult, but it's also, there's kind of like some elite status around it. And, and it can be intimidating for people to like, to not want to ask and then find out the price is something that like makes them go pale, you know? Right. And it's fascinating, like, you know, vape and just like very much like the street art, graffiti kids, skateboard, Supreme world, how it really has made it accessible, like in a way that, that, that industry had never seen. Right.
1: It really has. And the cool thing about Greg is, so he's not a sneakerhead. He loves to joke. He wears like, you know, loose fitting khaki pants and brown loafers from 10 years ago. And so he, but he he did see people's passion around it. And crucially though, he really understood the problem at hand. He realized that if you're going to spend $2,000 for a pair of shoes, you know, there's fraud in the mix. How do you know if it's authentic? How do you know if that's the right price to pay is just overinflated? And so he brought a transparency, a level of transparency to a marketplace that was previously closed. And he also made sure that it was safe. And so when he looks at StockX, you talked to him today, he says, you know, sneakers was our first column, just like Amazon's first column was was books. But he doesn't look at StockX as a sneaker business. He looks at it as as a stock market of things. So they've since expanded to watches and handbags, and and they they intend to expand, you know, dramatically to many other categories, but with that same principle of transparency and and consumer safety. That's great.
0: You know, I'm thinking about some of the other stories that that I've heard you tell both in YouTube and and flipping through the book. You know, maybe one of the next ones that would be fun to hear about is is the world of drone racing and and the principle that the rest of us can take away from that story
1: yeah so this is such one of my favorite uh, interviews that i did for the book i interviewed a guy named nicholas horbazuski who is the ceo and founder of the drone racing league so the drl and, and and think about this like if you wanted to start and own not just a team but a league I think how intimidating and crazy that would be. And and Nicholas was a normal dude. He he was you know a, a, he's not Elon Musk. He was not some fancy you know billionaire trust fund guy. But he saw something really cool. He in 2010 he learned about drone racing, which was this sort of amateur hour kind of thing where people were racing drones with pool noodles. And as the technology continued and increased, he thought it was like the coolest thing ever. But he said, "Well, why isn't anybody commercializing this? Why isn't there a professional league?" So he decided to start this, and and he he he, he got after it. Quickly to learn that it was a mess. Like it, there was a whole technology platform that didn't exist—the technology to be able to have pilots communicate with these drones and and have the, the mechanics involved. It would just it wasn't there. So he basically became a tech company, even though that was wasn't his original intent. He also had to create—you know—it's sort of this chicken and egg. You know, how do you get sponsors without advertisers, uh, without uh, customers and viewers, without? And so he he created this out of nothing. And as as I got to to know him better, he really followed these eight principles that we cover in the book. You know, real quickly one of them was you know he start he, he fell in love with the problem not the solution so he didn't think that hey my job is to be doing drones the way they were done before he's always evolving and changing so trying to solve the, the core underlying problem of of could he could he make a professional league on it he is constantly reinventing and adapting he sort of has this break it to fix it mentality which is one where you're even when something is working instead of that whole adage like if it ain't broke don't fix it that's a terrible piece of advice by the way like why wait till something's broken so he's constantly readapting every year he changes the rules of the drone race and it's fresh to the pilots even when they're racing it. So imagine like if every year the rules of football or baseball changed, but every year drone racing changes. There's a principle called using every drop of toothpaste which is about being scrappy and resourceful and not relying on external resources. And so he he cobbled this thing together. He sort of begged, borrowed, and stealed to, to, to get this off the ground, raising a very small amount of capital at first to get it going. Another principle we talk about all the time is called don't forget the dinner mint, which is saying, is there something I can add? Is there like a little extra creative twist that I could add to plus it up? So one of the things that he did is he's trying to blur the lines between the, the experience of being a fan and that of being a participant. And so as drone pilots use AR goggles to... to you like they're feel like they're flying inside the drone, that same feed, the exact same feed is beamed to viewers. So fans get the identical experience as if you were on the field participating in the sport. And so much that they actually now built the simulator and fans can learn to fly drones via the simulator, try out on the simulator, and they audition for a professional slot on the team. And they can literally become professional athletes, if you will, through the simulation. So he's truly really trying to blur the lines between fan and and, and professional. So point is, Nicholas Horbazewski is is. Breaking the boundaries, he's pushing the envelope, and all because he's applying these these principles of everyday innovators. You
0: know, I think it's great. You know, uh, he was on my wish list for guests already because he was the guy who figured out how to get a million dollars prize money for that drone race in in
1: Dubai. Wasn't that him? He's super creative, you know, he'll he'll go into like the BMW factory and convince them to let them use the factory. So, so like the geography is changing all the time. He's been able to line up sponsors. He's got deals with like ESPN and all these sports networks. And and it's remarkable because again, you think about the comp, the complexity of, of being a a professional athlete of any kind, then the complexity of owning like a minor league team or the, or, or owning a major league team here, he did all that and owns the league and built the underlying technology behind it all on a shoestring budget with no, you know, sort of deep industry contacts or so it really shows the principle of what an everyday innovator can do when when they when they put their heart into it and apply these principles. Yeah. You know, kind of a
0: separate subject. How many, how many keynote speeches do you think you've given in your career approximately?
1: I've had the privilege to give over a thousand keynotes all over the world on on the principles of creativity and innovation. And by the way, I come at it as a student, I come at it humbly. To me, it's just a keynote isn't about the speaker, it's about the audience. And here, here's the way I look at it, Jess. I don't know if you agree because I know you're a big innovation nerd like me. I say that with affection and love, of course, but I just look at it like this. I know what the research says. The research says that human beings of all types, it's not like some of us are creative and, and others are not. We are all creative. That, that We're hardwired to be creative in our own ways. And so I look across the billions of people on the planet as having huge reservoirs of dormant creative capacity. Me included, you included, like we all can probably bring more more creativity to the surface. And what I've seen is that when people just exhibit a small uptick, a small upgrade of of creative output, call it like a 5% creativity upgrade, the outcomes are disproportionate, like like it's a high leverage activity. So a 5% uptick in creative output can yield 100% or 1,000% better outcomes. And then I just think about what if we as as a society, as as a population, increased our creative output by 5%. So if it's right there, it's dormant in all of us and we can just help people extract it. Man, the world is just a better place. It affects educational outcomes and healthcare outcomes and business outcomes and you know, environmental outcomes. And, and so I just feel like I'm in this mission and I say that with sincerity of love, like how can we help people bring that creative ability to the surface and put it into their daily lives because the world's just a better place if they do.
0: No, I love it. You know, there's so many people that, They're interested in being a speaker. I'm interested in any advice you have of, of with, you know, with this type of mileage that you've got, what do you think you've done differently to be able to get booked that many times? What, you know, that other
1: speakers aren't doing. Well, funny enough, you know, uh, I have a background, as, as we talked about, as in running a tech company. And when I started speaking a lot, I, I just took the same rigorous approach that one would have in a tech company and applied it to the speaking industry, which is sort of this weird cottagey kind of industry. So I tried to dissect, like, what are the factors that drive fee and volume, the two core metrics in the industry? How do speeches get booked? What's the difference between, like, a, a $5,000 speaker and a $50,000 speaker? And I just took a pretty scientific approach. Made a ton of mistakes, by the way, and still make them all the time. But we we're able to build up a pretty, pretty uh, thoughtful engine. What I would say to someone who's thinking about it is that a couple things. First of all. The industry is bigger than one might think. It's actually, there's $4 billion of speeches bought and sold every year in North America alone. And that ranges, of course, from, you know, ex-presidents all the way down to the Rotary Club. But but there, there, there's actually a bigger industry than one might think. And the other thing is that there are some deliberate factors that you can you can focus on to drive fee and volume. It's not that you have to master everything. There's there's like eight or nine kind of core, core factors. It does require discipline and work. So anything in life worth doing, it, it, it likewise, you know, you're not going to go, you know, be, go halfway. Way to be a, an MD or a lawyer. Similarly, it does require some investment and some time and some, some hard work, but it certainly is within the grasp of most of us. It's a learned skill. It's not something that people are just born with or not. If, if we put the discipline in, we anyone can really do it. I would say the best way to think about it in your mind, real quickly, is that there's three interconnected businesses that one has to essentially run to have actually a single speaking business. You have to be a marketer. So you have to under, you know, kind of puts energy behind behind branding and positioning and distribution and price points and all that there, there's another bucket, which is being a thought leader, having something of original substance to say. You can't just these days go spout platitudes and cliches. No one wants to hear that. You can't be like the plaid jacket, cheesy, motivational speaker. So, so what audiences want is, is people who have substance and depth. And so you have to have uh, you know be, be really a thought leader and, and be able to look in the mirror and, and have some expertise. And then finally, you have to be a performer. So that involves you know sort of stage skills and delivery and performance. So you're part performer, part thought leader, part marketer. Mix it up and shake it up in your cocktails and, and, and that. That's, that's kind of what being a professional speaker is all about.
0: Yeah. What are some of those factors that you see different in the, you know, the 5 $5,000 $5, speech versus the 50,000?
1: Yeah, so one of them is, you know, do you, do you share truisms or do you share surprising truths? So if I said to you like, "Hey, you should go work hard and support teamwork." We all kind of roll our eyes because we already know that. And so no one wants to hear something they already know. So a, a $5,000 speaker might might recite obvious conclusions where a more expensive speaker is going to reveal surprising truths. They might, you might hear a a speaker like Dan Pink or Adam Grant or, you know, those those in the higher tier would say something like, I know most people think that hard work is the key to success, but in fact, it's the exact opposite and let me tell you why. And so when you hear that, you're like, whoa, what do you mean? Like, so so I'm hearing something that's fresh and new. Another element of a, of a higher dollar speaker is that they are rich storytellers. They understand that their job is certainly to communicate facts, but not to just regurgitate uh, numbers and charts. It's to take people on a bit of a journey. And so you're, there's tension and release, and you, you really you share compelling stories. Ideally, you're doing so in a way that is, I, could, I call it multimodal. So instead of just like here's 16 entrepreneurial stories in a row, you might tell the story of one entrepreneur in Japan, followed by a big company in Germany, followed by a nonprofit in in Tibet. You know, so you're you're sort of taking people around the world and revealing different forms. Some some are appealed to the head, some appeal to the heart, some appeal to the gut. The other thing I would say that that's important is is actually having a substance, ha- having a topic that matters to people. So it's it's one thing to tell great stories about you know some abstract you know Elizabethan literature or something, but how does that how does that change people's lives? And so if you can sort. To think about your core topical area, but then why does it matter to your audience? Why why does it make them better? What's the point? What it's like it's like to what end? So if I'm if you and I are focused on innovation, why does somebody care about it? And how does that make their life or their business or their community better if they get better and, and they understand that skill point? So I think it's being able to transfer that in a meaningful way is important.
0: You know, it's interesting how many of those principles probably apply no matter what you're trying to market, right? There's so much clutter, there's so much noise, and that unexpectedness, that having something fresh, but that's actually relevant, you know, probably applies no
1: matter what you're trying to break through on, isn't it? Well, you and I have been involved in in tech and and private equity and such, but if you think about a good entrepreneurial pitch, they say, here's the big, giant problem I'm trying to solve. Here's why we're the right people to solve it here's why we're solving it in a fresh and compelling way. And here's what the world's going to look like if I am successful. That's exactly how people should pitch their speaking business. It's funny. I mean, most people (laughs) say like, like you say, well, what do you speak about? They say, well, I speak about cybersecurity. So they're they're sharing their topic, but they're not actually taking people on, they're not telling the story. Back to our little thing. The first thing an entrepreneur would do is tell the problem. So uh, someone who speaks on cybersecurity should say, I help organizations that are struggling with threats known and unknown of all types. And they realize that they're facing an existential threat that if they get it wrong, could completely erode shareholder value and trust. And, and they spend all their time focusing on, on playing defense and it, it erodes their ability to play offense. And therefore, they're unable to better serve our customers and create competitive differentiation. And if they don't fix this, you know they, they could be in a whole heap of problems. So notice I didn't say a thing about me. I just said, here's the problem. So they first talk about the problem. Then the speaker might say, here's why they're the right person to solve it. I'm not a cybersecurity person, but if I were, I might say, hey, I've written four books on the topic and I've worked with 51 of the top uh, 75 brands and I've advised people all over the world uh, on cybersecurity. So you might share your qualifications, but then you might paint the picture of what the world looks like if, if this organization is about to hire you you solve their problem so you would say you know what once i work with organizations they're now able to shift their resources because they have the confidence that they've got things buttoned up that but now they can really focus on innovation they can focus on better serving customers they can focus on you know developing and cultivating great teamwork as opposed to being distracted with the burden of dealing with cyber threats so that's the way an entrepreneur would pitch their startup and that's absolutely the way a speaker should pitch themselves to be hired
0: yeah. I imagine a lot of those principles also translate to to book writing. When when you look at having New York Times bestselling books and and continuing, you know, you got another got another book coming out. What are some of the principles that you I mean, that's such a on the show it maybe not, doesn't seem that common because we have because we basically don't accept authors that <laughs> don't have bestsellers, you know. But you know, an Amazon bestseller is one thing. A New York Times bestselling book, that is that is a very, very, very small percentage
1: of books out there. What what are any principles you've learned accomplishing that? Well, funny enough, I try to apply these same principles that we talk about in the book. I, I just apply them in all areas of my life. I apply them with my kids. I apply them with my marriage. You know, I apply them in my community. And similarly, I, I try that when, when when writing a book and, and also marketing a book. You know, the, the, the notion that you can write the the great American novel or the you know the best business book you've ever thought of. And then you just by by the time it's done, your publisher takes care of everything and you're whisked off to fame and fortune. You know, that, that doesn't exist. I mean, that, that's right up there with riding unicorns to work on a rainbow or something. So so these days, you know, the author really is responsible for for promoting the book as much as they are writing it. I've just tried to do some non-traditional things. I mean, I'm doing some fun thing on social media right now where we took these black and white photos of famous people from the past, like Hemingway and JFK and Martin Luther King Jr jr and salvador dali and they have these cool black and white pictures of them reading a book and of course we photoshopped in a color version of the new book and so we're posting funny things like this is the moment of salvador dali when his mustache went from down to up and of course he's reading a copy of the new book and i'm not like trying to you know claim that they actually read it i mean obviously they're they're dead but it's just having some fun with it so that that's one thing we're doing to cut through the noise but i did i did do something is kind of fun this this time We'll see if it works. And I know that you're you're deeply involved in charity, which I, I admire greatly. And I, I hope most of us, uh, once we reach a level of success, can, can, can give back. So I'm like you, I really do care deeply about giving back. And, and I try to be philanthropic, you know, regardless of launching a book. But I thought, is there a way I could fuse those two together? So what I've done is in the five weeks leading up to this book launch, I, I'm focusing on one charity per week. I'm partnering up with them to, to spread the word where I'm basically making a dollar for dollar book match. So for example, one of them is Livestrong, which supports cancer research. And so Livestrong will you know kind of help promote the, this during their, their one week. And if someone just buys a book during that week and then gives a proof of purchase, I will then, let's say it was 20 bucks. I will then add that to the tally. And at the end of the week, no matter how many books were sold, I will give back 100% of those dollars to, in, a, in a single check to Livestrong. So that way people who are care, care about Livestrong, they feel like, okay, cool. I get a good book out of it. And it's actually going to support the charity. And for me, it's cool because I get to you know donate money to a, to a charity that I care about. So we picked five charities and we're one a week leading up to book launch. And we think that's a cool way to like get the word about out, out about the book, which I really do in my heart feel like I'm not just trying to sell books. Like it will make the world a better place. And we're helping these charities at the same time. And that was one non-traditional thing that we're doing. We'll see how it works. Yeah, I love it. Well, why don't you tell, tell us another principle and another story from the book? Yeah, there, there's some really fun stuff here, you know, in the book. One of them I talk about a lot, which I you know you, you'd appreciate and people in innovation talk about all the time is I call it open a test kitchen. And so very often we think of innovation like this big, giant, overwhelming thing. And, and, and we think to try innovation means we have to bet our company or our career on it. And when you weigh like the scales of justice, it, it feels like it's too risky and overwhelming. So we gravitate to the status quo of doing nothing. And so as we know, doing nothing is actually much riskier than we might think. You know, one thing that I've learned in my career now in 30 years in business is that you know too often we sort of overestimate the risk of trying something new, but we underestimate the risk of standing still. And so anyway, this principle open a test kitchen. If you think about a test kitchen, like like Shake Shack is a great restaurant. They have a test kitchen underneath their their Greenwich Village um, store. And and this thing is tricked out and they're constantly like trying new ingredients and they're trying new dishes. And then they run upstairs to get customer feedback, but it's not just inventing new menu items. They're also looking at little stuff like, Hey, is there a way we could save, you know, two steps of a cook between, you know, prep station one to prep station two. So they're looking at the big stuff, but they're also looking at the little stuff, but they're, they're deconstructing innovation into a series of small experiments and prototypes in a safe controlled environment. So when you do that, when you think of innovation, not as these big swing for the fences, you know, great your teeth, high risk efforts, but, but you de-risk it by breaking it down into these small manageable prototypes and build sort of a culture of experimentation. That's what this principle is all about. Open a test kitchen. And uh, it's really fun. You know, we, we, we look at, you know, people who, who lead big life insurance companies and, and why the, uh, the folks who, who are the championship America's Cup team in New Zealand won a race, and it really gets back to how many experiments you're running. You know, Jeff Bezos famously said, "You know, our success is directly correlated to how many experiments we run per year, per month, per week, per day." And I think that's a much more healthy way of looking at innovation, is breaking it down. That we should always be running lots and lots of little experiments, realizing full well that many of them won't work. But you you, you get rid of those bad ones quickly. When something works, you don't just go crazy. You just say, "Okay, let's double the size of the experiment," and if that works, double the size of that experiment. And what this does is it de-risks the creative process it makes it much more palatable for for normal folks to try big ideas
0: you know when you think about rapid experimentation what kind of ideas you have for folks who are saying wow we really like we've been maybe giving that lip service but you know historically (laughs) historically the, the diary the journal wouldn't support that we are an organization of rapid experimentation we want to become more like that way when it comes to essentially reprogramming staff, what kind of ideas do you have of, of getting that baked into how we do things with this company?
1: Yeah, man, that's an awesome question. So the first thing that doesn't work is platitudes where there's conflicting messages. So if we say something like, hey, we want everyone to be innovative, and then the second someone shows up with a bad idea, they're sent to corporate timeout, you've just like trained everyone not to be innovative. So the whole issue as a leader, if you want to build an organization that has a culture of innovation, a culture of everyday innovation, it's all around building rituals and rewards that support the creative process. So a couple of examples. One company that I worked with, every time their their goal was, okay, we want everyone to generate a lot of ideas. Thing is that we we don't want people to feel dejected because we can't physically execute on everyone. Not everyone's going to be perfect. You know, sometimes it's the idea that leads to the idea that leads to the idea. So anyway, they created a ritual around this in which they take these four feet tall glass jars. Anytime an idea is generated in the entire company, they put a white marble in. Anytime an idea is, is fully embraced, they put a red marble in. And then what they did is they saved the jars. They fill up like a whole wall in their corporate headquarters. So when people walk by every day, it's a visual cue. They see a whole sea of white with little teeny specks of red. And that's a, a visual cue that encourages people like, okay, it takes a lot of white marbles to get to a red one. And it's okay if I have white marbles I want. They got to keep coming. And that's how we ultimately generate the, the keepers is having more ones that that, that don't quite work. So that, that's one example. Another one real quickly is that the you know, biggest obstacle for both individuals and organizations organizations that restricts creative output. It's not natural talent. It's fear. So fear is that poisonous force. You know, we don't, we've been told don't, don't take any risks. Don't make any mistakes. Failure is fatal, all this stuff. So again, rituals and rewards can, can, can fix that. One company that I, I worked with issues, every team member two corporate get out of jail free cards every year. They say, look, no matter what your business card says, being an artist, being a creator is part of the gig. And so therefore, we want you to take responsible risks. We want you to be creative and we fully recognize that not everything will work. So therefore, when you inevitably screw something up, hand us a card, you're off the hook, no questions asked. On the annual reviews, a team leader will be disappointed with a team member if they haven't used both of them. And so the, the whole principle here is again, rituals and rewards that supports the desired behavior. If we want a lot of creative output, we we're gonna have to, you know, again, build a culture of experimentation and have rituals and rewards that support it. I, I really love what a visual example that is,
0: you know, having that daily reminder that people have to walk past and that doesn't look like the other stories you've already heard, you know, and any other
1: any other examples of rituals and rewards. Yeah, one that was, comes to mind is um, one company that I work with, they they have this annual award ceremony and it's for the failure of the year award. And so, you know, they celebrate other stuff like the team member of the year or the project of the year, but the failure of the year goes for the team or individual that had a really smart idea and like the numbers made sense and they went for it and it didn't work out at all. But instead of getting fired or shamed, they get a standing ovation and people are clapping and cheering and slapping high five, like way to fail. That's awesome. Wait, job. Good job. And so just think for a minute, though, the, the message that, that that sends deep into the DNA of this team about, again, the importance of taking responsible risks and the, and the role that failure plays in the process. One of the other principles in the book uh, I borrowed from a Zen proverb, the principle is fall seven times, stand eight. And it simply acknowledges, first of all, that, that failure is part of the innovation process, that, 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 that mistakes are not fatal. They're, they're, they are the portals of discovery. And it's not around dogged persistence. It's around creative resilience. Just like uh, someone would work in a laboratory, we just thankfully now have have a COVID uh, vaccine. It wasn't like some dude with a lab coat just ran down the hall someday with a eureka moment. How did they develop it? They all got in a lab and they had hundreds and hundreds of failed experiments. And the ones that showed a little promise, they they tweaked and adapted. So the only way they were able to achieve a remarkable result is through dozens or hundreds or thousands of little failures along the way that were, were corrected ultimately to a good outcome. So that's how we really should be thinking about innovation. And again, we need to build those, 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 uh, the frameworks and, and rituals and rewards into our culture in order to enable them. You
0: know, right along with that, I love the stories where people actually give the left and right limits of like, here's how big a failure you're allowed to have. Cause when it's fuzzy, people shrink back. It's like, You know, those, like you hear about the hotels, you can make, you know, Four Seasons or Ritz-Carlton. Somebody's like, you can make a decision on behalf of a customer up to $500 without approval, period, or whatever it is, you know? And they're like, okay, this is, you know, this this is what I can do. It's like those kids where they're like, if you put a bunch of elementary school kids in a field and there's no fences, they'll all huddle in the middle and play there. But if you put a fence, all of a sudden you'll have kids all over right to the fences because they, they're because they
1: not scared to go to the edge kind of thing, you know? I love that. You're exactly right, though, because I, isn't that part of leader's responsibility? Because if people have an in, inherent, you know, concern about going too far, like you said, they're going to gravitate in the middle of the field. So, so we have to share them with the, what the boundaries are. By the way, I would say to any leader, what's the optimal number of failures or failed experiments or mistakes or mess ups? It is not zero. No way. If it's zero, that just means you're not trying hard enough and you're not you're you're likely not going to be able to keep up with competitive forces. You know, in Silicon Valley, we like to see a twenty to forty percent failure rate. Companies like Google have way higher than that. And so we can't we got to stop looking at it as right or wrong, good or bad. you know, a failure shouldn't be a scarlet letter. It really should be a badge of honor as long as you're learning and growing as a result of it.
0: Yeah, you know, there's a couple other stories that I love. you know I like the the TV, the TV box, you know, the bike guys who, their bikes keep get getting damaged in the shipping, so they they put a picture of a TV on it so people will treat it treat it like it's fragile. I, I especially love the the con body workout, your your prison guy story of the the kid who basically nobody will give him a job, and so he embraces what's an advantage of being a convict is people actually think you know how to work out, and they call their gym members inmates, all these kind of things. But so everybody should be, you know, getting the book so they can get these stories. But the one I want to talk about is, is back to this idea of breaking through and this idea of cutting through the noise, doing something unexpected. And it's your Air Canada WestJet story. You know, I grew up in Western Canada and I, I, you know, Air Canada can sometimes have a reputation similar to the DMV in California. Okay. So it was like a little extra funny that the players in the story were Air Canada and WestJet. Can you
1: tell that story just quickly? Yeah, sure. And again, to me, we just got to stop looking at innovators as only the people at the top of a company. When we have a culture where everybody's an innovator, man, just amazing things happen. So here's what happened. So an Air Canada flight got stuck out at at the runway at the Toronto airport for seven hours due to weather conditions. It was a snowy day. And so, you know, those poor passengers. So they're stranded out there on this runway. And once they gobbled up all the peanuts and they drank all the booze, as you might imagine, they're getting pretty restless. So at this point, like they're begging the flight attendants, you know, please give us some food, et cetera. So at this point, a well-intentioned Air Canada flight attendant, following procedures, by the way, gets on the microphone and says, ladies and gentlemen, I'm sorry, there's nothing that can be done. Nothing that can be done. Well, someone disagreed. And this was a West jet pilot who happened to overhear the commotion. So he happened to be at the airport, he's a pilot, it's not his job to be you know, an innovator, quote unquote, but he saw his real job is to serve his company and elevate his brand and to take care of passengers. So about 45 minutes later, this guy walks up to the plane, climbs up on the stairs, bangs on the door. And when these guys open up the door, this guy's sitting there holding an armful of pizza for the guests. And so he's like now all of a sudden like hijacked the plane with pizzas for, for these hungry travelers. And it was amazing. There are their tweets. People are saying like, you know, awkward, but funny moment. WestJet guy walks in and says, Hey guys, I got some pizza. And so what happened is not only did this delight the, the couple hundred people on board, of course, this this spread dramatically and, and elevated the brand of WestJet. And so a couple of quick observations. First of all, you know, two identically situated organizations, same product offering, same capital structure, same regulatory burden, same price point, same union, you know, same equipment, but a different set of beliefs. And one stumbles while the other soars. And the other thing you'd say, okay, well, isn't that guy's job to be a pilot? Yes. But his other job, and I I think we should all say, what's our other job? Part of our other job is to be an innovator or to be an artist. And so part of his job was, yeah, I I am a pilot, but but I also have to look beyond that and think about how I can inject some creativity to to, to grow my company and to delight my customers, which he did beautifully in this example. Yeah,
0: for sure. Well, listen, for people who want to connect with you, for people who want to check out the book, where, where are the best
1: places? Well, so the best place is probably to visit biglittlebreakthroughs.com. There's a whole bunch of free goodies there. There's a free creativity assessment. Um, by the way, it, uh, creativity is much like your weight than your height. So I'm, I'm a short dude. I'm not going to be 6'4 tomorrow, but my weight, I can fluctuate up and down based on, you know, development and nutrition and all that. So anyway, this is sort of like jumping on the scales. It tells you where you are now and where what are some areas that you might want to focus on. There's all kinds of downloadable worksheets. There's this whole toolkit. There's a bunch of goodies, but it's at biglittlebreakthroughs.com, and of course, inside that site, there's a bunch of ways to to connect with me. You feel free to also connect on social. My uh social handle on just about every platform is just my name at Josh Linkner, L-I-N-K-N-E-R. Love it. Well, we covered a number of different subjects here, but what's one that we didn't cover? You know, to me, it's just this notion of leaving our big, biggest possible fingerprints on the world. I, I know all of us care about certain outcomes more than others, but we all care about something, whether it's taking care of our families or our businesses, or our careers or the environment. And, and I just, I, I don't want innovation to feel out of reach. It's so important to me that we all can feel innovative. And maybe I'll just leave you with one one quick little final story. So let's zip on over together to to, to London, England. And in London, there's this guy named Trowin Resterick, who I got to meet and interview for the book. But Trowen is not a household name. He's not a celebrity. He's not a billionaire. He's an average dude. Like he struggled through college and he got a normal job and he's trying to pay the bills. But, but Trowin cared deeply about the environment. He was sort of an outdoorsman. And it turns out that in central London, the biggest problem, litter problem, is, is cigarette litter. So unlike, you know, it's not—it's unsightly, it's ugly, it's dangerous to the environment. Small children and animals can ingest it. It costs them a couple million British pounds to, to clean it up every year. And so the, as Trowin looked at this problem, he saw all these methods were failing. They tried shaming people into compliance. They tried issuing fines. Nothing was working. So Trowin decided to become an everyday innovator. So he invents this thing called the ballot bin. And the ballot bin is a metal box that's mounted at eye level. It's bright yellow, so you can't miss it. The front of it is glass. And at the top is a two part question, like, which is your favorite food, pizza or hamburgers? And there's little teeny receptacles underneath each question and a divider with this glass front. Basically, what happens is you vote with your butts. So you take your cigarette butt, and you feel like, hey, I like, I like pizza better. You watch it drop on top of the other ones. And it almost looks like there's two bar charts that are fighting for supremacy in, made up of, of cigarette butts. And so in this case, he didn't shame people. He didn't issue a fine. It wasn't the high tech solution. It didn't cost a fortune. But when there's a ballot been installed in a city center it reduces cigarette litter by up to 80 percent and so now trean went on to 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 install these they're now in 27 countries he's taking a real bite out of out of a legitimate problem that people do money and engineering and all these degrees at and he solved it being a normal dude with a bright creative idea so to me when I hear stories like that that summarizes this book which it is showing how how everyday people can become everyday innovators.
0: Well I you know I liked reading that story in the introduction I was a little disappointed to hear that Superman was getting more votes than Batman. Cause obviously Batman's better. Okay. But I thought it was funny. Like, brexit yes or no like a little bit of humor a little bit of like what do my neighbors think you know and he, he's tapped into some human psyche that they do the work of cleaning up you know do work of cleaning up for him it's great
1: yeah i just again i look at at the the superstars i look at richard branson and i'd say that's sweet for him but like i couldn't maybe i could never do that but i look at tro and restaurant i'm like you know what i could do that i could see myself in him and and that's to me what is so exciting is when you start seeing yourself in some of these cool stories that means that that, that's within the grasp of all of us to, to, to act innovative, to drive, drive the outcomes that we care about the most.
0: Well, you know, my previous question about how do we get our staff to start to choose this more often? And like, I like your, I like your rituals and rewards thing, but, but even just sharing stories like this, sharing stories of more attainable innovations that's you know, humans like monkey see monkey do, right? Like, it's so easy to think things are possible as, you, as soon as you watch someone else do it. You know, I grew up doing action sports and we we always wanted somebody else to go off the snowboard cliff first or go off the snowboard jump
1: first, and make sure they didn't die, right? Yeah, it, uh, makes it, it makes it accessible. I totally agree with you. And by the way, like when you were learning action sports, you know, you didn't just go and do the biggest jump of your life your first time out. You know, first you had to learn, learn the sport. And so when we look at creative genius, quote unquote, we look at, you know, Da Vinci's Mona Lisa, that wasn't his first painting. Like he had to first learn how to paint and he had to learn to paint every day. And he had to paint a bunch of bad paintings before he could paint the good ones. And so one of the things I talk about in the book is, is some simple rituals that we can do on a daily basis, little creative habits. In just two seconds, I'll tell you one that I do every morning. I'd spend, they say in software engineering, if you want to change the outputs, you got to change the inputs. So, what I do after just taking a big deep breath is I spend literally one minute, one minute where I absorb creative inputs. I might watch a live jazz performance on YouTube. I might stare at a painting. I might read a poem out loud. One minute where I'm basically absorbing the creativity of others. And then I give myself a one minute, like creative jumping jacks, a simple exercise that doesn't really have a work product that matters, but just to keep me in in shape, creative shape. I might say, what are seven alternative uses for a pencil? Or if I lived in the island of Haiti, how could I win an Olympic medal for whatever? And so like the idea is just giving yourself fun challenges that you have to solve in creative ways. And just those two things alone, Jake sucking in some new creative inputs and giving yourself a simple creative challenge each day. You do that for 30 days in a row and you'll start to build creative muscle mass. You'll get in the groove, your creativity will elevate.
0: Hey, I got your next book idea. 365 days of creativity challenges. Open up, flip the page to June 2nd, flip the page to... January 18th, do your your challenge before you start your day. I love it. Hey, listen, thanks for doing this. Thanks for sending me a copy of the book. I think it's great. And I will not be surprised to hear that you've got yet another successful book here soon.
1: Well, Jess, thank you so much. Thanks for the great podcast, the great work that you do. And hey, maybe we should consider co-writing that one together. I'd be all about it.
0: (laughs) Bye, everybody.